to a special edition of the show, Her Story on the Rocks. Usually I'm sitting with my wonderful co-host, Katie, and we're hanging out, drinking some cocktails, and talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to women making history and writing about history. So today we have invited Audrey Claire Farley onto our show. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Great. I'm so excited to start to talk about this because we met each other kind of on Instagram and then this evolved. So this is great. Audrey was an English professor at College Park, which is really close to where I am right now in Baltimore, and an author. And we've invited her on to talk about her new book that's coming out in April, The Unfit Heiress, The Tragic Life and Scandalous Sterilization of Anne Cooper Hewitt. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, so actually, I was just a PhD student. At, oh, okay. So you went yeah. there. Okay, cool. Yeah, I went there and um, studied English literature, focusing on 20th century America. I've always been interested in this time period of history. And after I graduated and moved back to my hometown with my spouse and kids, which is in Hanover, Pennsylvania, not very far from Baltimore. Yeah. I uh, was sort of you know, twiddling my thumbs, not sure what I wanted to do. And I was just kind of reading and thinking a lot. And I stumbled across um, eugenics in some research that I was doing. And I swiftly figured out that I knew very little about the eugenics movement. And I was so fascinated that I just kind of dove down that rabbit hole. And it was in doing so that I came across Anne's story and I just immediately wanted to be the one to like bring her story to the public. Wow. That's, that's pretty incredible because the way that we met um, on or e-met on Instagram was that we had put up an episode on the regular, her, like a regular season, her story on the rocks episode about um, Madrigal v. Quilligan case in California. And you were like, Hey, I have a book about that that's coming out in April. And I was like, oh my goodness, you have to be on. So I'm so excited that you could. <laughs> yes, I'm so happy that I happened to see your, your tweet. It was very serendipitous. Yeah, it worked out well. So typically, as everybody knows, we like to drink on this show. But again, our Friday interviews are usually at like 11 a.m. So I'm still on coffee. But tonight, tonight, everybody can make this cocktail um, or in the evening. So this is for your book, The Cocktail is Named The Unfit Heiress, and it is three ounces of Lilith, which is a French aperitif, and one ounce of orange juice, a really good splash of champagne, and then some orange peel inside of it. That sounds fabulous. Oh, it's great. And it's definitely what I'm going to drink tonight. And we'll send you the recipe and a beautiful cocktail picture. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, can't wait. So I guess let's begin. Let's start by setting the scene of Anne's life. This is like the early 20th century, the Victorian era is still thriving, but fading out in some places. What was life like in America for Anne and then like for other women in general? Mm -hmm. So Anne was actually born in Paris. She was a love child. Her parents weren't married. Um, but in both Europe and America, women uh, were beginning to break away from the Victorian norms that had really, you know, gripped in the 1800s. So under Victorian life, women were expected to be very prudish. 
because uh, Victorian physicians believed that the human body only had so much energy and if it expelled too much, people could go insane. So that meant it was women's jobs to make sure that their husbands weren't having sex too much because that could drive someone crazy. And so they were supposed to not talk about sex, be very prudish about sex, certainly not enjoy sex themselves. And so then with the turning of the century, those norms begin to lose their grip on women. And part of it is the war. Because of the war, women get out of the house and they enter the workforce. Um, They have more freedoms. They're going around town without a male companion, in part because so many men are abroad fighting. And so women begin to um, to sort of cast off these this restraints of Victorian life and think, well, I want to enjoy sex. I want to go bicycle riding around town by myself. And um, and so Anne was born at this moment when those those norms were sort of losing their hold. Wow, that's pretty incredible. And you said that Anne was a love child, and we'll get into this a little bit later. But her relationship with her mother is pretty contentious. Um, mm-hmm. So what was her early life like as a, as a kid? Like the title heiress leads me to believe there's some wealth there. Um, so how, how was she growing up in her house? So she lived with her mother because her father was married to someone else when she was born. And it wasn't until she was three that her parents got married and even once they were married, the father being a very established businessman who hailed from a very famous family was traveling between Paris where they lived and New York. So he wasn't around a lot. And Anne's mother resented her from the day that she was born. Uh, I think there were many reasons for this. The two big reasons being that Anne was born prematurely and she was a needy infant. And the mother, who was somewhat of a partier and lived, you know, a riotous life, saw this, this infant who's very needy, colicky, as cramping her style. And I think that the other um, reason that Anne's mother always looked down on her is because her father, Peter Cooper Hewitt, adored her so much. And uh, Marion, Anne's mother, was used to being the, the fixation of every man that she'd ever met. And so she, in a way, I think she was jealous of her own daughter. So uh, Anne grew up with Marion in this environment, and in her early years, she says she would remember being in her crib, sometimes for hours at a time, sometimes all day. Um, The maids wouldn't even come get her because they were obeying what the mother told them to do. But if her father came to town, if he arrived in Paris, she remembers him lifting her up out of the crib. That was one of her earliest memories. And so she she loved her father and he adored her in return. But from the first, her relationship with her mother was very contentious. Mm. Yeah, what it's such an interesting way, like story. And I see this a lot with these women that have these big, powerful stories that their relationship with their father is often much stronger than their relationship with their mother. It's an observation we've made a lot. And I bet somebody could make a wonderful study about that. (laughs) And I would read it. Yeah, yeah, it will not be me, but I will definitely read it. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about involuntary sterilization. So you um, you get your PhD, you like start like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And you find eugenics and then Anne sticks out. But every episode 
we've done about eugenics on our show has typically been women of color, women who are living um, with some sort of disability, uh, women who are living in extreme poverty. And Anne is just so the opposite of that. How, how did this come to be her story? Mm-hmm. So I think that it's important to emphasize that from the first, eugenics was always about whiteness and white supremacy. Mm. And it came to be a force in the U.S. precisely because of the racial anxieties of the time. So two things were happening at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, Black Americans are beginning to mass migrate from the South to the North and immigrants are coming in in record numbers. And so a lot of officials began to fear that the white race was going to lose its dominance and its purity, especially if there was this mixing between the races. And so they began to forcibly sterilize people to shore up the white race. So even though their first victims were often poor whites, um, disabled whites, it was still about white supremacy. And those victims were like collateral victims of white supremacy. And part of the philosophy was that promiscuity was also a threat to the purity of the white race. Because if a woman is promiscuous, then that may mean she's crossing the color line. And uh, that's actually uh, came up in Anne's case. Her mother said she was oversexed. And she was addicted to men in uniform, which was a way of saying working class men. Mm -hmm. And then she also said that Anne um, was caught with a, quote, Negro porter on the train. And Marion knew what she was saying when she said that about Anne. She was trying to appeal to these fears that eugenicists had about white people mixing with blacks in a way that was going to dilute the, the purity of the white race. That's so interesting because I had never seen it from that angle before. It was always like, well, women should be proper. And if you're super promiscuous, then you're not being a woman. But it's so much more than that. It's so connected to, wow, the race lines. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But she got, they tested her and she was seen as, or like she didn't pass the test, right? Like feeble-minded, but didn't she, wasn't she like bilingual? She was pretty smart, right? Yes. So um, she was taken to the hospital under the auspices of having her appendix removed. Um, But prior to the surgery, she was taken to another room and there's a psychologist that asks her a bunch of questions, which are basically civics questions, you know, like what's the longest river in the United States? Why did the pilgrims come? And she just says, you know, why are you asking me these asinine questions? So she doesn't respond. And consequently, she's labeled feeble-minded. But being a rich girl, she, of course, had access to governesses and a lot of um, training. So she was, you know, fluent in French and Italian. She had read Shakespeare and all of that. Um, And and so she wasn't feeble-minded. But they used that test against her. Mm. And I mean, her mom was kind of, we've, we've talked about her a little, but kind of a piece of work as yeah. well. Um, and I, I couldn't help be like 
doubly shocked as this keeps going on because some of this was about inheritance, right? And if Anne doesn't have children, she gets less of the inheritance, which first shocked me because inheritance with stipulations is kind of BS. And then secondly, like how could a mom do this to their child when it seems like her mom lived a pretty similar life? Mm -hmm. Yes. So the mom was a partier. And when Anne filed her lawsuit against her mother for sterilizing her, she very quickly aired her mother's dirty laundry. And she said, she's addicted to men. She's addicted to drinking. She's squandered away my inheritance at these casinos around the world. Um, So basically, she's a terrible mother. And then, you know, as you know from the story, Anne's mother responds by airing Anne's laundry and saying, you know, that she runs around with working class men, including Negro men. She said that Anne had been addicted to masturbation since three years of age. Um, And she cited Anne's um, physical, you know, disabilities. Just the fact that she was constantly sickly, probably because she was born prematurely. Uh, She said she had a disturbance of the endocrine system. I don't know what that would mean in today's terms. Um, and so it, it just, it was two women that were both throwing punches. It was like a Jerry Springer story and, and people were just riveted from the first. Yeah. And I, I, that's what I was going to say. This is like, gotta be early America reality show stuff is that everything about their lives was published like all over the newspaper. So this court case is like really gripping America, like they know about her drinking habits, her spending habits, her lingerie, like personal, personal things. How is this affecting the public? Do they like it? Do they want more? Are they disgusted by these people? What's happening? Well, I think it's very interesting that there was a eugenics case in 1927 that went all the way to the Supreme Court and it barely made the news, even though it was hugely consequential. Anne's story, on the other hand, was just splashed across the newspapers. Even very respectable papers like the New York Times covered it almost 50 times that year. And so it was over the tabloids. It was over these respected publications. Um, A lot of newspapers like the uh, San Francisco papers where the case was taking place had these like forums where people would debate eugenics in the pages of the paper. Um, so I think it was just the nature of the claims against each other that really, you know, captivated people and, and called attention to eugenics at a time when people didn't know so much about it because it was not polite conversation to talk about the tens of thousands of people that were being sterilized in asylums. And so in, in bringing it out into the, into the public, the case sort of forced Americans to acknowledge what was going on. Mm. And what what were the repercussions of this on 20th century America? Like, did it get better? Did it get worse? Obviously, we know it doesn't get better for a while. But right. what, what happens? Because it seemed like in this case, and I think you, you put this really nicely um, in your book, it was now all of a sudden, not a genetics thing almost. It's an environmental thing that she's getting sterilized for. So it's like, Well, now we can do it to anybody. Exactly. Yes. So what's interesting is that the case came 
precisely at a moment when the eugenics movement was actually on life support. So there were two threats to eugenics. Um, In the beginning, people sort of accepted it undiscerningly. They were like, oh, sure, it makes sense. We're going to do this. And um, a few decades in, a lot of scientists began to say, well, you know, maybe the inheritance of positive and negative traits is a little more complicated than we thought. Maybe poverty isn't an inherited defect, like we've been saying. Maybe it has more to do with social questions, all things that are obvious to us today. So there's this scientific blowback. And then there is the development of the Nazi party in Europe. So in 1936, uh, the Nazi party, of course, hadn't executed, you know, its full horror of plans, but it had passed things like the Nuremberg Laws, which forbid sterilization or forbid um, marriage between Jews and non-Jews and which selected certain children for sterilization. And Americans in seeing what was going on abroad, which by the way, was totally, um, inspired by American eugenics programs here at home. Um, In seeing what Germans were doing with our blueprints, it suddenly became more horrible to people. And they began to wonder if, you know, if it was really morally right that we were sterilizing entire classes of people. So the case comes along at this moment when the fate of it is iffy. And um, there were two eugenicists behind the scenes who were um, advising the lawyer for the two doctors who had sterilized Anne. And those eugenicists encouraged the defense counsel to not focus on Anne's supposed genetic defects and really just emphasize how she had this terrible home life. Their logic being that she grew up in this terrible environment. Her mother was a horrible mother. And as tragic as that was, the fact remained Anne was now going to make an unfit mother herself. So as you said, this enabled them to move away from the genetics aspect of eugenics, which was totally being criticized now by scientists, and sort of modernize it in a way that forced sterilization can continue into the 20th century. Wow. That is the age old nature versus nurture. Like, what can we say? Is she going to, how is she going to act? Because this is the way her mother acted. Wow. How do you feel like in your process of writing this book, has your relationship with Anne changed? Because I'm sure there were moments where you're like, come on girl, get it together. And then there are other moments you're like her biggest cheerleader. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I would say I started off approaching her and the story as an academic, um, in part because I had come across the story in an academic book, and so I was very focused on the historical significance of what happened. And I had a wonderful, wonderful editor who really pushed me to then ask the emotional questions, not just what happened, but why it happened. And that was the hardest part of writing is to be um, to be able to get inside her head a little bit. And um, and, and it, it's risky as a writer to do because you, you're so afraid of getting it wrong. Um, but I really empathized with Anne in a number of ways. Um, and I was just really um, had sympathy for her, even though, you know, as you know, from reading the book, you know, she did become a little bit like her mother and, you know, do things towards other women 
that were, you know, deeply shameful. Yeah. And it's, it's hard to though, because I, I think this might be a thing people relate to. She was so young, right. When she found out that she had been sterilized and just to have an entire avenue of your life completely blockaded for no reason is just bonkers. And do you think that's the biggest thing people will relate to? Or do you think there's like when, when people are flipping through these pages, what, what emotional drawl are they going to have to her? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing, are we giving away parts of the book here? We don't don't have to, you can, (laughs) that's up to you. Well, I mean, I I suppose I will, but everyone should still go out and buy the book. And they will. It's great, guys. It's really good. (laughs) Yeah. So Anne ended up forgiving her mother. And um, by that, I mean, she showed up at her mother's funeral when very few people did. They never reconciled in the sense that they, you know, had this formal coming together. But I think that she forgave her in showing up at her funeral and also in deciding that she wasn't going to testify in the case against her mother after the case with the two doctors was completed. And I respected that about her. And I was afraid that readers were not going to like that Mm -hmm. um, because this was, she was horribly abused and she ends up, you know, forgiving her mother. And I was just really, really nervous about how people were going to digest that. But so far, and it seems to move people. It does. And it, it's almost, you know, Anne was forgiven her mother for herself. You know, yeah. it, it, it makes you connect with her when it's like, yes, take that weight off your shoulders, girl. You do not need to hold that grudge. Like, remove it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. I think that she realized that um, her mother had received the same thrashing in the media that she did. And in a way, what they experienced that year in 1936 bonded them. They were both on trial for the same crime, which was being unfit for motherhood. And, and that brought them closer, even though, you know, they were throwing punches at each other. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the writing process. And in April, when people, and also guys, you can pre-order this book, but in April, when people like have this book and they start to sit down and read it, what should they be expecting? Is it laid out more like a biography? Is it laid out more where we're just talking about the history of sterilization? Are we more focused on the court case? What should they be expecting to lay around and read on a nice spring day? So the book is a work of creative nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So it's true, but I've taken liberties to recreate dialogue and to get inside the characters' heads a little bit. And I did this because I really wanted to bring the story to life. There have been plenty of academic books written about eugenics, and I wanted this to feel like reading a novel. And I think that it has worked. A lot of people have said, you know, that it really is as page turning as it is thoughtful. So it's a book that people both want to read and need to read. It is. It's the, it's the best way to read history. When people get the chance, it, it brings it kind of to the everyday person, right? When you can sit and read and say, okay, I, we acknowledge that this isn't the exact conversation, but this is as close as we're going to get to the exact conversation. And that's really nice. Um, 
So when you started the writing process, what is your, what was your research like? Were there primary documents? Were you working off of other people's secondary works on eugenics? What did you find from Anne's life? It was mostly a mix of reading tabloids and newspapers and academic books on eugenics. So it, I mean, I was totally engrossed. I was working, you know, 10, 12 hours a day because I was just so into it. I was enjoying myself so much. And so I was learning more about the time period and the history of sex and eugenics and all the racial anxieties of the time from the academic books. And then I was learning about characters and their lives, um, both before and after the case, um, through reading the newspapers and because Anne's family was so established and well-known and because her mother had a reputation long before this particular case, there was extensive coverage about them in papers. So I was easily able to account for Anne's entire life, her mother's life, her father's life, because they'd been so widely covered. They were such a prominent family. That's really cool. Did your research take you anywhere? Like, did you get to get up and like travel a little bit or was it all like via the computer? This case um, was all via the computer and um, there was a bit of archival research that I did, but the, um, the archive was willing to send me things electronically. Mm. Um, and so that really, really helped. Yeah. Great. So did you have a part of the book that was either your most favorite or the most difficult like piece to write where you just like kept coming back to it and being like, I love this piece. I want to get it right. Or I hate this piece and I don't know how to get it right. Mm -hmm. So I'll share two examples. One of my favorite scenes is when Anne is young and she had one maid that took pity on her and was kind to her. And um, the rest of the maids sort of followed the mother's lead, probably because they wanted more money or, or her favor or whatever. But this one nurse uh, maid would let Anne go into her mother's closet when she was gone uh, out shopping in Paris and try on her clothes and trying her hats. And so Anne does this. And one day uh, she rips the gown that she's wearing and the maid comes running in and she sees what's happened and she's startled and she spanks Anne and then she begins to cry and she holds Anne and she she's crying because she knows what's going to happen. And what happens is that when Marion, Anne's mother, returns, she takes the blame and says, you know, I ripped the dress. And of course, she's fired for that. And and she knows then that in her leaving, Anne has nobody now. And so I, I just thought that that scene was really you know, poignant and moving. And I wanted to get it right because there are just so few scenes in the book where someone is showing such love to Anne. Um, and I, I wanted to show, you know, that she was loved by her father, by the maid, not by her mother, but that she did have some people. Um, in terms of scenes that I struggled to write or parts that I struggled to write, I thought that the ending was very difficult because there is no happily ever after. You know, readers like resolution. And the fact of the matter is, you know, eugenics is still reverberating today. Um, just this past year in 2020, we learned about forced sterilizations taking place. And so it was hard to wind down a book when this, this tragedy is still haunting us. 
Wow. Yeah. And it's really powerful. And you talk a little bit about that. I was reading about you and like, obviously the book, but talking about, obviously now we're looking more, this is happening in prisons um, across America. Um, So, and I'm sure many other places, (laughs) where can people find you on the big wide world of the internet? And then where can they find your book in, in April? So my website is AudreyFarley.com and I'm on Twitter and Instagram. My handle for both is Audrey C. Farley. So I welcome anybody that wants to follow along mm-hmm. and the book is sold in all the usual places, bookshop, um, indie bound, all the big box sellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and just local bookstores. Yeah. Well, Thank you so much for reaching out when you saw um, my post online. You're really good at repping yourself. You should be proud of that. <laughs> I just wrote a book. <laughs> I all that to my publicist. Yeah. <laughs> you did a great job. Um, and just thank you so much for writing this. It's such an important story and it sheds light on a problem that you point out has happened and is still happening. So it's a really, really important work that everybody should go out and grab. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been an honor. Wow.